It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. There is an abundance of mountains in the U.S., but the ones in Washington stand in a league of their own. Not only are they some of the most beautiful mountain ranges in the United States, they are also home to a very chilling legend. The only thing scarier than running into a large ape-like creature in the mountains is running into a whole tribe. At the base of Mount St. Helens, there have been many sightings and encounters with these creatures. Though they seem to be reclusive and shy, they have proven to be aggressive if outsiders go too far. Five miners learned the hard way that they were not alone in the woods. The wilderness is a beautiful place and is home to many creatures. Many of these creatures are known and tolerate our presence, but there are some that are unknown, and when you trespass in their home, they may be ready to fight. Welcome to Freaky Folklore, the podcast where we discover the horrifying legends across the world and tell terrifying tales of monsters both ancient and modern. This week, we are discussing the Ape Canyon Incident of 1924, a night lived in terror for five Washington gold miners. This show is part of the EerieCast Podcast Network. Find more terrifying tales at EerieCast.com and be sure to follow us on Spotify or your favorite podcasting service. You can leave an honest review on iTunes, too. The more we get, the more we grow, and hopefully, the more monsters we can explore. If you would like to submit an encounter or suggestions for future episodes, you can email them to carmencarrion at gmail.com. That is C-A-R-M-A-N-C-A-R-R-I-O-N at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook for information on future episodes. On a hot summer day in July of 1924, Fred Beck was working with a team of gold diggers in a canyon located in the shadow of Mount St. Helens in hopes of striking it rich. There were five men on the dig with Fred, Gabe Lefebvre, John Peterson, Marion Smith, and Smith's son Roy. The men had been prospecting together for roughly five years and had come across large tracks from time to time by creek beds and springs. Hank, the avid hunter and woodsman of the group, was always a little apprehensive after seeing the tracks. The tracks were large, and the group knew that no known animal could have made them, as the largest track measured 19 inches. 
Yet all five of these men were oblivious to the life-changing events that would soon take place. As they made their hike into the woods on foot, they struggled. Loaded down with equipment, food, and supplies that they would need to survive for several days in the wilderness. They were headed to a makeshift cabin that had been built with the sole purpose of sheltering them from the elements and the wildlife at night as they slept. The cabin, though small, was built strong and sturdy. They had been on the worn trail for about an hour when they began to hear strange sounds. It was a high-pitched animal call. Hank, who had been in the lead, came to an abrupt halt, almost causing Fred to crash into him. Making a shushing sound, Hank held up his hand, motioning the men to silence. Listening, they waited, but the sound was gone. Fred felt a shiver run up his spine, but quickly brushed the uneasy feeling aside as they resumed walking. The men were exhausted by the time they reached the cabin and unpacked. Each man knew his job, and like a finely oiled machine, it was just a short time before the equipment was organized and a dinner of chicken soup was warming over the fire. Fred was first to wake the next morning. The sun slipping through the cracks in the cabin walls made him squint as it pierced his eyes. It was still early, so Fred quietly without waking the others made his way out of the cabin to put the coffee over the fire. You see, the cabin was barely large enough for the five men to sleep, so they did all of their cooking outside. The coffee was beginning to perk, and as Fred watched it in a sleepy daze, he heard a familiar sound coming from the ridge behind the cabin. It was the same high-pitched animal call, but this time, the call was answered by another from the other side of the forest. Fred felt that tingle run up his spine again and began to feel uneasy. He had the strange feeling that someone or something was watching him. He was scolding himself out loud for being a fool when young Roy came staggering from the cabin still in his long underwear. Is that you making all that noise? A fella can barely get a good night's sleep as it is in that sardine can excuse for a cabin, the younger man grumbled. Fred shook his head and explained to him that it was the same sounds as before. The sounds continued calling back and forth, as if whatever creatures were out there were having a serious conversation. All the while, Fred and Roy listened until everyone in the cabin had risen and joined them. Everyone agreed that the sounds were unlike anything they had ever heard before. Hank would have recognized the call of just about any animal that could have been found in the area, and he was just as puzzled as they were. The sounds continued through breakfast and finally let up as they headed down the trail behind the cabin where they would work for the day. The men had been rattled by the animal calls, but their nerves had begun to calm, only to be shook again when they found footprints next to a spring close to their dig. The footprints looked almost human, but everyone agreed that to their knowledge, no man had ever lived that had feet that large. They were well twice the size of Gabe's foot, and he wore a size 13. For the next couple of weeks, the calls from the ridge in the forest became routine, sounding every morning at breakfast, 
and shortly before the men finished their dig at the end of the day. On the day that everything went south, they had received a good assay on their claim, and everyone was excited, thinking that they were finally about to strike it rich. Everyone except Fred, who was suffering quietly until now. Fred had a tooth that had been throbbing since the beginning of the trip into the canyon, and the heat of the day along with the toil of digging had made the pain almost unbearable. Finally, after a long day of suffering, Fred gave in to the pain and suggested that Hank take him back to town to see a dentist. But Hank was so enthused with the prospects of the gold mine, he barely even took time to answer him. Hank's only gruff reply was, God or the devil could not get me away from here. When they had arrived, they had all rode up in Hank's Ford truck before walking the final distance to the cabin. Fred had no other way to get to town unless Hank took him. So, Fred was doomed to suffer silently until their planned trip home. When they returned to the cabin on the north side of the canyon, Fred, dealing with a nagging toothache, had little appetite for their evening meal of beans and hotcakes. He sat quietly and watched the others eat. The menacing animal noises started up shortly after dinner. First, they heard a shrill, peculiar whistling coming from the ridge and then the expected answer from another ridge not far away. But this time, the sound was followed by a thumping, like something was hitting itself on the chest. Hank, needing to get some water and apprehensive from the strange noises, asked Fred to accompany him to the spring to get some water. Fred agreed, but suggested they take their rifles just to be safe. They were heading to the spring when Hank yelled and raised his rifle, and at the same instant, Fred saw it. It was a hairy creature about a hundred yards away, on the other side of a little canyon, standing by a pine tree. The creature appeared to be about seven feet tall with blackish-brown hair. It peeked out from behind a tree and disappeared only to reappear a short time later. It did this several times before it finally began to run fast and upright about 200 yards down the little canyon. Panicked, Hank pulled his rifle into firing position, aimed, and fired three shots hitting a tree, sending bark flying onto the ground. The creature paused and seemed to stumble for a moment before heading away from them. As it disappeared into the woods, Fred fired several more rounds and could have sworn he had seen it fall. They took the water back to the cabin and told the others what had happened, but the others laughed at them. Hank swore that what he had seen was mountain devils, which made them laugh even harder. When the men saw that Fred was equally upset, they quieted down and listened. They eventually came to the consensus that it was probably a large bear, but they all agreed, including Hank, to go back home the next morning. It would have been too dark to make it to the car that night, and they all agreed it would be unsound to be caught by the darkness way out in the woods. This decision may have saved their lives. This episode is sponsored by June's Journey. What is horror to you? Monsters, murder, mystery? Well, if human monsters are your thing, 
June's Journey is the game for you, albeit in a more lighthearted tone. June's Journey is a hidden object game with a thrilling murder mystery set in the Roaring Twenties. You play as June on the hunt for your sister's murderer. Discover clues through exciting hidden object scenes with beautiful and atmospheric illustrations and music. Victory brings you closer to new plot points and suspenseful answers. When not hunting for clues, you can customize your own luxurious estate island with gardens, buildings, and decor. Or chat and play with or against other players too in the Detective Club, where you could even put your skills to the test in the Detective League. June's journey is both relaxing and fun to play. With my busy schedule, I find it's the perfect game to pick up and play whenever I've got a free moment. It doesn't demand too much time, and it's pretty satisfying solving puzzles quickly and unlocking new clues. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Ape Canyon is a narrowing gorge sitting just to the southeast of Mount St. Helens, along the edge of the Plains of Abraham, where one of the most famous Bigfoot attacks in the cryptozoological canon is said to have taken place in 1924, eventually giving the nature spot its name. During the summer of 1924, a group of gold prospectors stumbled out of the woods with a story that would fuel a legend. Glassy-eyed and shaking, they claimed that the group had survived an attack from a group of hairy ape-like creatures. Fred Beck, Gabe Lefebvre, John Peterson, Marion Smith, and Smith's son Roy described coming upon gorilla men near where they had built a small cabin for their gold hunting expedition. Startled at the sight of the huge beasts, Fred Beck claimed to have fired his rifle at one of the creatures and believed he had struck three times. As a result, the wounded animal toppled off of a cliff. Years later, Beck claimed that another member of the group had fired the shots. The group found out later that evening that firing on the creatures proved to be a mistake. Tales of giant ape men were already common in the area. Hunters, lumberjacks, and prospectors had seen massive footprints on many occasions over the years. Native Americans in the area had spoken of mountain devils, but few people were ever seriously worried about the possibility of huge unknown creatures living and roaming out there in the forest. That all changed when the gold hunters returned to civilization that summer day in 1924. The sensational story of their battle with the large ape-like beast was irresistible and caused an uproar that was hard for people to dismiss. With news reports and word-of-mouth retelling of the incident causing a local sensation, the U.S. Forest Service decided to investigate. Rangers J.H. Huffman and William Welch were assigned to the task. They hiked into the forest with Beck, who took them to the cliff where he said the wounded ape man fell. One of the rangers scrambled down this supposedly inaccessible canyon and later told a local newspaper that he had found nothing. Beck took the rangers to the prospector's cabin, where Beck pointed out some large stones that the creatures had used in the attack. Huffman and Welch were not impressed and came to the conclusion that the gold miners had probably placed the stones there themselves. But an Oregonian reporter asked the rangers when they returned to Kelso, Washington, 
What about the 14-inch long footprints found near the cabin? Huffman created an imprint in the ground using the knuckles and palm of his right hand. They were made that way, he said. In 1967, Bigfoot hunter Roger Patterson compared his foot with a cast he made of a footprint in a photo submitted to the Oregonian newspaper. The footprint was more than twice the size of Patterson's. Despite the ranger's attempts to disprove the story, people still wanted to believe, and as a result, the tale continued to spread. Friends and acquaintances of the five men who reported their experience believe that the men actually saw something which cannot be explained. The Oregonian newspaper reported later that summer. Frank Wanasi from the Cowlitz Indian tribe told a reporter about peculiar creatures the tribe's elders had often spoke about. Mr. Wanasi described them as between 9 and 10 feet tall, correspondingly large in stature, and their bodies covered with long hair, the Oregonian wrote. The report continued, they were never seen, traveling only at night. Wanasi insisted the animals were harmless. In the years that followed, the prospector's story would be told many times over, inspiring more sightings of and new theories about the beasts. The incident of 1924 was not the last time that mysterious happenings would take place in Ape Canyon. In May 1950, a new mystery began when Jim Carter, an experienced mountaineer and expert skier, disappeared while skiing with friends. Jim Carter, 32, was with a party of 20 from Seattle who were on Mount St. Helens in Washington in May of 1950. On the way down the mountain, Carter left the other climbers near a landmark called Dog's Head at around 8,000 feet. Carter told the rest of the climbers that he would ski around to the left and take a picture of the group as they skied down to the timberline. From there, Carter took off down the mountain in what was called a wild and death-defying dash. He seemed to have taken chances that no skier of his caliber would take unless something was terribly wrong, or he was being pursued. Despite a large search of the area for weeks by experienced search and rescue teams, no trace of Carter was found. Only a discarded film box at the point where he had taken a picture was discovered. When Carter's tracks reached the steep side of Ape Canyon, the searchers were amazed to see that Carter had been in such a hurry that he went right down the steep canyon walls. But they did not find him at the bottom of the canyon as they expected. The tracks were traced by plane again towards the Eagle Creek Ranger Station before they disappeared into complete wilderness. Bob Lee, a member of the Seattle Search and Rescue Unit who helped in the operation to find Carter said, Carter's complete disappearance is an unsolved mystery to this day. Lee was a very experienced Portland mountaineer and his credentials included that he was a member of the exclusive Worldwide Alpine Club and the leader of the 1961 Himalayan Expedition and advisor to the 1963 American Expedition. Lee said that every time he got cut off from the rest of the searchers during the long search, he got the feeling that somebody was watching him. And there was something strange on the high slopes of the mountain. He described the search as the most eerie experience he had ever had 
and could feel the hair on the back of his neck standing up. He was unarmed except for his ice axe, and he said, believe me, I never let go of that. In his statement, he said, we combed the canyon one end to the other for five days. Sometimes there were as many as 75 persons in the search party, but no sign of Carter or his equipment was found. After two weeks, the search was called off. More than 75 years later, and Jim's remains or equipment were never found. Since 1924, Oregonian reporter Anita Nygaard wrote in 1974, tracks have been sighted on the Lewis River, attested to by rational and honest witnesses. Occasional campers and motorists have been startled by glimpses of huge and mysteriously hairy creatures walking like men, disappearing into the woods. In 2019, Ape Canyon the movie was released. It isn't what you would expect, though. The movie isn't about the Ape Canyon incident that took place in 1924, even though it was inspired by it. The story is about Cal Parker, a boyish man struggling to cope with his mother's passing. Cal hasn't seen his sister Samantha since their mother's funeral, and she is surprised when he suddenly interrupts her English lecture one morning with a bag of tacos and a proposal. As a child, Cal was obsessed with Bigfoot, the legendary American cryptid. His proposal is a week out in the woods in Oregon, near Ape Canyon, looking for Bigfoot. Reluctantly, Samantha agrees to the trip, but only because he had already bought her ticket with her credit card. So Samantha joins Cal on this adventure with his vague explanation that he had to go to Ape Canyon because that is where they are. To be led around by Cal, the irresponsible, frustratingly likable kid brother, turns out to be dangerous. Cal is enthusiastic to the point of irrationality, to make his way to Ape Canyon and find Bigfoot for himself. They join with a small group of adventurers and their guide from the Bigfoot Investigation Organization and whatever obstacles they face. That first obstacle being that their guide took off with money and valuables and left the group in the woods to die. But Cal will not be turned away. For whatever reason, for Cal, this is not a matter of legend. This is not just some adventure. If Samantha doesn't stop him, Cal will either find Bigfoot or die trying. Sasquatch, Bigfoot, Skunk Ape, and the Boggy Creek Monster. They are all similar and almost likely the same cryptid. They have been spotted all over America in the forests and mountains. Cal from the movie is not unlike millions of people who are fascinated with the large, hairy, human-like creatures that have been sighted in the American wilderness for decades. Even though there is no proof that what the gold hunters saw that night in Ape Canyon was any of these creatures, the description is remarkably similar. The Bigfoot Field Researchers Organization was founded in 1955 and is the only scientific research organization exploring the Bigfoot-Sasquatch mystery. This is a list of the undisputed facts about the ape-like creatures according to the organization. It's a fact 
that for more than 400 years, people have reported seeing large, hair-covered, man-like animals in the wilderness areas of North America. It's a fact that sightings of these animals continue today. Real or not, these reports are often made by people of unimpeachable character. It is a fact that for over 70 years, people have been finding, photographing, and casting sets of very large human-shaped tracks. Most are discovered by chance in remote areas. These tracks continue to be found to this day. It is a fact that the cultural histories of many Native American and First Nation peoples include stories and beliefs about non-human peoples of the wild. Many of these descriptions bear a striking resemblance to the hairy, man-like creatures reported today. To many, these facts taken together suggest the presence of an animal, probably a primate, that exists today in very low population densities. If true, this species, having likely evolved alongside humans, became astonishingly adept at avoiding human contact through a process of natural selection. To others, these same facts point to a cultural phenomenon kept alive today through a combination of the misidentification of known animals, wishful thinking, and the deliberate fabrication of evidence. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. In the cabin was one bunk bed where only two could sleep, feet to feet. The rest of the men had to sleep on pine boughs on the floor. It was quite cramped but they seemed to manage. At one end of the cabin, there was a fireplace fashioned out of rocks. There were no windows in the cabin, and only the one door used to enter and exit. So the darkness found all of them in the cabin with only one way out. The men were sitting around the cabin puffing on their pipes as they did every evening, talking about their trip home the next day. Eventually, they settled down in their crude but welcome beds and fell asleep. It was around midnight when they were all awakened to find Hank, who had been sleeping in the floor, yelling and kicking. But it wasn't Hank's ruckus that had woken them. It was a tremendous thud against the outside of the cabin wall. At first, they thought Hank had somehow caused the thud, but eventually realized that he had not, and that is what had him so upset. Some of the chinking had been knocked loose from between the logs and had fell across Hank's chest, which probably added to his agitation. He had his rifle in his hand and was waving it back and forth as he kicked and yelled. Hank always slept with his Remington automatic nearby. It was a scary sight to see a grown man waving his gun frantically in such a panic. The other men didn't know quite what to do and were scared that the gun might accidentally discharge if they tried to help. The last thing they needed was to haul a grown man out with a gunshot wound, or even worse, dead. Fred, finding his head, helped to get the chinking off, and Hank jumped to his feet. 
They were all wide awake at this point, trying to understand what was going on when they heard a great commotion outside. It sounded like a great number of feet trampling and rattling over a pile of unused shakes. The other men grabbed their guns as Hank squinted through the space left by the chinking. What he saw, by actual count, was only three of the creatures together at one time, but it sounded like there were many more. They each looked like the hairy large creature that Fred had fired at earlier that evening. This was the start of an attack that would become of which so much had been written in Washington and Oregon papers throughout the years. Most accounts tell of giant boulders being hurled against the cabin and say some even fell through the roof, but this is not quite the case according to Fred Beck. There were very few large rocks around in that area. It is true that many smaller ones were hurled at the cabin, but they did not break through the roof but hit with a bang and rolled off. The men were terrified, but ready to fight. Some of the rocks fell through the chimney of the fireplace. Some accounts state that Fred was hit in the head by a rock and knocked unconscious. This is not true. Fred was conscious for the entire terrifying event. The creatures seemed to attack in waves, and the men would answer with gunfire. When the attack calmed from time to time, the men saved their ammunition and quietly waited for the next round. Fred told the rest of the party that maybe if the creatures saw that they were only shooting when they attacked, they might realize that the men were only defending themselves. They could have had clear shots at them through the opening left by the chinking had they chosen to shoot, but the thought occurred to them that this might be a prank and the creatures might actually be people. The men did shoot, however, when the creatures climbed up on the roof of the cabin. They shot round after round through the roof. They were unsure if any of the bullets fired made contact. They had to brace the hewed log door with a long pole taken from the bunk bed. The creatures were pushing against it and the whole door vibrated from the impact causing the wood to make a splintering sound. The men responded by firing many more rounds through the door. They pushed against the walls of the cabin, as if trying to push the cabin over, but this was pretty much an impossibility. As previously stated, the cabin was a sturdy made building. Hank and Fred did most of the shooting while the rest of the party crowded to the far end of the cabin, guns in their hands. One had a pistol and the others clutched their rifles. They seemed stunned. The attack continued the remainder of the night with only short intervals between. A most profound and frightening experience occurred when one of the creatures being close to the cabin reached an arm through the chinking space and seized an axe by the handle. Before the thing could pull the axe out, Fred swiftly turned the head of the axe upright so that it caught on the logs, and at the same time Hank shot, barely missing Fred's hand. The creature let go suddenly and Fred pulled the handle back in and put the axe in a safe place. Whether from shock or as a way to cope with fear, Hank began singing. If you leave us alone, we'll leave you alone and we'll all go home in the morning. He did not mean it to be humorous, for Hank was dead serious and sang under the impression that the mountain devils, as he called them, might understand and go away. The attack ended just before daylight, 
just as soon as the men were sure it was light enough to see, they cautiously left the cabin. They were gathering their things in a hurry outside the cabin when Fred saw one of the ape-like creatures standing about 80 yards away near the edge of the canyon. Fred calmly raised his rifle and fired three shots, and the creature toppled off the cliff, down into the gorge some 400 feet below. Hank, who had been watching this play out, suggested to the others that they leave quickly, while they still could. He said they should just leave their packs because it was better to lose them than their lives. On the way out of the forest, while headed back to town, the five men agreed that they should never share the story. They believed that people would just laugh at them and say that they had made it up. Hank, however, once back home in Kelso, Washington, failed to keep his promise. He told some of his friends, and somehow the story leaked out to the newspapers. That was the beginning of the Great Hairy Ape Hunt of 1924. Thank you for listening to Freaky Folklore, the podcast about mankind's horrifying legends and myths. Don't forget to follow Freaky Folklore on Spotify and iTunes. If you can, leave the show an honest review on iTunes to help us grow. Freaky Folklore is part of the EerieCast Podcast Network, the home for listeners who love to feel scared. Go to EerieCast.com to find other terrifying podcasts, such as Unexplained Encounters, Tales from the Break Room, and Redwood Bureau. If you would like to submit an encounter or suggestions for future episodes, you can email them to carmencarrion at gmail.com. That is C-A-R-M-A-N-C-A-R-R-I-O-N at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Tune in next week as we talk about El Kakui, a monster from Latin American folklore that may be hiding in your closet. Until next time, stay safe out there because this world is a strange one.